Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, listeners. Welcome to the first episode of New Books in Celebration Studies, a brand new special podcast series from the New Books Network. My name is Emily Allen, and I am the host for this episode. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Atkins about her 2017 book, New Orleans Carnival Balls, The Secret Side of Mardi Gras, 1870 to 1920, from Louisiana State University Press. In New Orleans Carnival Balls, Dr. Jennifer Atkins draws back the curtain on the origin of the exclusive Mardi Gras balls, bringing to light unique traditions unseen by outsiders. The oldest carnival organizations emerged in the mid-19th century and ruled Mardi Gras from the Civil War until World War I. For these organizations, carnival balls became magical realms where cruisemen reinforced their elite identity through sculpted tableau vivant performances, mock coronations, and romantic ballroom dancing. They used costume and movement to reaffirm their group identity, and the crux of these performances relied on a specific mode of expression, dancing. Using the concept of dance as a lens for examining carnival balls, Atkins delves deeper into the historical context and distinctive rituals of Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Jennifer Atkins is Associate Professor in Florida State University School of Dance. Atkins teaches courses in dance history and theory, especially related to dance in the Americas, and co-chairs the dance and culture area of the Popular Culture Association. Her first book, Carnival Balls in New Orleans, The Secret Side of Mardi Gras, 1870-1920, published by Louisiana State University Press, received the 2017 Jules and Francis Landry Award. The award is presented annually to the LSU Press book that, in the judgment of the press, constitutes the most outstanding achievement in the field of Southern studies. Her articles about New Orleans' dance history and its relationship to gender, race, and class have appeared in the book Walking Ratty, The Baby Dolls of New Orleans, from the University Press of Mississippi in 2018, and journals like Louisiana History and the Journal of American Culture. She also co-edited a two-volume anthology, Perspectives on American Dance, which presents new approaches to looking at concert and social dance in the 20th century and the new millennium, published by the University Press of Florida. In addition to New Orleans dance practices and dance in popular culture, Atkins also researches innovations in dance studies pedagogy. So, Dr. Jennifer Atkins, welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk with you today. So um, before we get into questions about your book, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your process of writing the book? Sure. Well, originally I'm from New Orleans, so I grew up dancing. And this is kind of a interesting project for me because it marries both of those things. I also have a doctorate in American history. So what I do now is draw from that entire background. 
I try to write from a perspective that looks at American history from a cultural view, that of the body in motion, but especially in social and popular dance. I'm always trying to explore this one question in particular, and that's how does the socially choreographed body reveal what it means to be American? And so that's a really interesting question to pursue when you have a subject like this one, which is for the most part, totally secret. You know, I had read so many Mardi Gras histories and all of them spoke about the balls, but none of them had really described what the balls looked like or what their function was for the Mardi Gras crews. And I knew that only the members of the Mardi Gras organizations, which are called crews, were allowed to attend these very, very private affairs. So the dance historian in me, of course, becomes very intensely curious about all of this. And that led to a new question for me, which was, how do you research a secret? So I became a detective, you know. Um, I looked at pictures and scrapbooks and dance cards and invitations, newspapers, personal letters, costumes and tableau sketches, anything really that I could get my hands on that would either describe the actual ball or people's experiences or the names of people who were involved. And from there, I started to create a chronology and a list of themes that emerged. And then I started linking them to national events and local events and started to see what came up for me. Great. Really interesting process. We'll uh, talk more about that um, in a little bit as well. Um, getting into the details of the results of that process, you know, let's look at, for instance, the time period indicated in your book's title. Why did you choose to focus on the years 1870 and 1920? Uh, yeah, well, 1870s is interesting because, well, between 1870 and 1920 is when most of these old line crews formed. So it's the time of reconstruction and we get a glimpse of what it's like for crewmen to rebuild their lives and to reconstruct themselves after the Civil War. Um, this is the time when modern Mardi Gras emerges. And in fact, they are the groups who contribute to that. And everything changes with the crews hosting their member only parades and their specific routes, and then their tableau balls. But by the time 1920 rolls around, everything changes again, right? So in 1870, we had this monumental change with the reconstruction and the emergence of modern Mardi Gras. But then in 1920, with the beginnings of uh, World War I really impacting New Orleans, the French Opera House burns down where most of the balls were held, uh, Storyville closes, but also we have uh, middle-class uh, revelers creating their own truck parades and women starting their own crews. So Mardi Gras changes yet again and has a lasting impact. So what's considered to be the golden age of Mardi Gras comes to a close. And um, so I look at it for that reason, but also as a gender historian, 1920 is a really useful time for looking at gender changes. And 1870 is a rather new time for looking at that because you don't normally think of um, looking at, for instance, women as a marker or at reconstruction as a marker for looking at women in, say, Mardi Gras. But it's really interesting to look at gender and reconstruction from that vantage. 
Right. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, the spirit of what you're talking about definitely resonates, you know, in the text um, and what you try to tease out in your book. Um, Going back to some terminology, too, that you raised and that, you know, in your introduction of your book, you mentioned old line crews in New Orleans and how, as you've been getting at the importance of the balls to those organizations. Um, So can you clarify for our listeners what an old line crew is and who would have been involved in these old line crews? Definitely. That's very important to understand. An old line crew is well a crew is a Mardi Gras organization. It's a it's a club. But the old line crews are the oldest, most prestigious of these Mardi Gras organizations. And so specifically the mystic crew of Comus, the Knights of Momus, the crew of Proteus, Rex, and the original Twelfth Night Revelers are all organizations who would be considered to be the old line crews. Now they were super secret fraternal organizations. So only men were members. They were in the beginning, mostly Protestant and Northern transplants. So within a generation or two of beginning, they had moved from Northern states down to New Orleans for various economic, mostly business reasons. Um, They were also who the groups who modernized Mardi Gras And they did so by borrowing from Creole traditions, European traditions, um, Southern traditions that didn't really exist in New Orleans, but they had friends in Mobile and they had a romanticized idea about the South. And so that factored into how they created Mardi Gras, but also part of their Northern traditions factored into this modernization of Mardi Gras. So they really, the old line crews became the carnival leaders and still are to an extent today, but they were also the city's cultural and sometimes political leaders too. So when we think about old line crews, the crews are Mardi Gras organizations, but their members were also the cultural and political elite of New Orleans. Thank you for that. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you hear the term ball, obviously that's usually associated with kind of upper class values. Um, And in these balls that they would sponsor, why do you think it's so important to look at how dance operated in those contexts? Well, I see dance everywhere and I have a really expansive definition of dance. I I tend to think more in terms of movement practice. Um, Because the moment you say dance, I find a lot of people kind of clam up. They're like, oh, I don't know much about dance or I don't know how to dance when in fact, so many of us do. And it's really useful to think about movement practice as a way to uh, consider the kinds of the kinds of values or decisions that we make consciously or not, and, and the way those play out in the body. But as far as why is it important to look at dance and old crew, old line crews and, and their balls, it's because, you know, being from New Orleans, we love, people from New Orleans love to talk about New Orleans, I find, or at least I do. And uh, part of that is I love reading about New Orleans and learning about it. And I've read a lot of Mardi Gras histories and they talk about the balls, but not really, as I said before, what's involved in a Mardi Gras 
ball? And what's the point of it? And what goes into it? And how does it operate? So the fact that they were the secret side of Mardi Gras, I thought was really compelling, especially since dance from the city's founding has played such a a conspicuous and integral role in the city's history, right? So I was really curious, what is this relationship between the crews and their super secret dance practice? So if you read the book, hopefully you'll agree that we learn a lot about this connection. But in general, when we think about why is it important to think through these kinds of connections, it's because dance or again, movement practices it tells us a lot about how groups function because it literally shows you how people relate to each other, uh, what they value, and then also how behavior indicates group ideas, right? So the way that we literally and figuratively move through life is inscribed on our bodies. I love that. I love the idea of that, you know, inclusive explanation that you just gave of movement practice. Yes, I definitely think that comes through, um, particularly in the role of women um, that we'll get to later in those movement practices, you know. Um, And, you know, you talk about how class stratification plays into all that, of course, too. Um, In your next chapter, you state ballroom respectability depended on class stratification. So how did you see class come into play in those New Orleans ballrooms in the 19th century? (laughs) It's just like dance class is more like how don't I see it or, you know, whiteness or, or masculinity or, you know, any of those, they, they now in retrospect are so infused into every part of it, you know, but if we tease out the, the class aspect, when we think about the ballroom in the 19th century, at least for Eurocentric ballroom dances, they looked very different for for the various classes, you know, and the higher up you go in the class stratifications, the more physically bound and the more linear the dances were, the more upright they were, and the more rules there were governing who and where and how these dances were to be done. And you know, there were entire books dedicated to outlining how a man could engage a woman for a dance or ask her to dance and how many dances he could ask her to dance with him for, and then how she was supposed to respond. And then all of these other codes of etiquette surrounding the ballroom behavior, right? And there were also dancing manuals. And dancing manuals, we could argue, were as important back then as the internet is today in some ways. You know, it's really interesting in that way. And this is because dancing displayed relationships, social relationships, romantic ones, even political ones. So, for instance, when New Orleans switched hands between the French and the Spanish and the Americans, which it did many times, each nation hosted a ball for the other one who in turn returned that favor with a ball of their own. In the 19th century, the ballroom was a microcosm for society, you know, where everyone was doing and watching all of the time. You could be made or unmade in the ballroom itself. And so respectability and class stratification You could only get into certain ballrooms and you only knew how to do certain dances 
and you were only really good at doing those dances if you had enough money and came from the right kind of family to spend your time learning them. So how your body, again, literally moved through society spoke so much about the kind of status you held. Right. That makes sense. Um, Interesting, for sure, to see all those details that you've kind of parsed out um, in these secret societies and how that's all negotiated through the body in that way. You also started to get at how much New Orleans changed in terms of, you know, its nationalistic ties and all that. So kind of going to the micro level here of how all that would have affected, you know, New Orleans Carnival. One big shift you mentioned is the 1857 Mystic Crew of Comus parade as an uproar. So how did you see New Orleans Carnival changed after Comus entered the scene? Yeah, they were an uproar. Well, to the Creole society, and, and by Creole in this book, Creole are the European... Um, the American-born of European descent, so French and Spanish um, people who were born in New Orleans. And Comus was an uproar to them because Comus had this predetermined route through the city, and it was in the American sector of the city, this parade, and it had members that were the only people who were allowed to march. So as they marched through the streets, you couldn't just join into the fun, which had not been heard of before. It wasn't this improvisational route. It wasn't an improvisational like call to revelry, you know? Um, So this idea of being a closed parade where only members could march and having a predetermined route was um, an affront. But even more affront was that at the ball, only the members could go to the ball. No one who spoke French was invited. No one Catholic was really invited. And they didn't speak any French at the ball. So it was considered to be, even though it, Comus was kind of positing this as a, a really highly select affair, the, the New Orleans Creoles were seeing this as a highly uncultured affair. So that, that was definitely the, the uproar. But what it does is it changes. It changes the ritualistic nature of public Mardi Gras for white people in New Orleans so that um, the Civil War does disrupt a lot of this. But soon after the Civil War, Comus and their friends start to create even more crews and continue this tradition that foments into a triad really of parading of masking essentially costuming so that they ride on horses and floats literally towering above everybody in the streets so they're setting themselves apart and then their mass ball so they have clothes parades they have uh, masked marauders and then they have these secret balls and that three-pronged approach creates modern Mardi Gras from an uproar to what we now consider to be the, you know, traditional way. Right. Gotcha. Um, 
that makes sense. Things kind of get more like complex, I guess, as time's gone on. Um, and in those processes, how do these different crews prepare for their balls? How did they prepare for their balls? In yes. which way? I mean, oh my gosh, they spent the entire year preparing for their balls. Um, and it, and it changed over time. Um, so I think answering that question would really depend on what point in time we're talking about, right? Cause they would have different committees. Some people would look at just who was going to be invited. Some people would look at how to decorate the space. Some people would look at costumes. Some people would look at themes, um, some people would look at the court. So there were so many facets involved that it would take an entire year to determine. But essentially the way that it worked is that every year there was one theme or a pageant theme for the crew. And that determined what their parade was going to look like, what their costumes were going to be, and then what their tableau ball was going to look like. And so then each of the tableaus that they would present at their ball would be according to that theme. And so then they would have invitations that had illustrations that were according to the theme. Um, They would also find, you know, music and and characters that illustrated the theme. And... um, they would set about like checking lists against who was allowed in and who wasn't. And generally their routes were set after a few years um, and what days they would have their parades and their balls were set as well. So that Comus would, for instance, have Mardi Gras evening. And so that all of the other crews could come to Comus's parade or actually they didn't attend the parade. They only attended each other's balls. Um, they couldn't go to each other's parades because then they would miss the ball. There was just so much that went into the preparation for themselves getting ready for the ball that if they went to the parade, they wouldn't be ready. So they staggered when their parades were so that they could visit each other's balls and perform for each other. And all of this took an entire year, including the people who had to um, decorate the Um, theater that they would rent out for the evening for the ball because they would transform the theater into a performance space and take the entire orchestra seats and put a floor over it so that the stage extended the entire bottom floor. And that's more space for performing and for being seen and for dancing. So it was a pretty lengthy affair. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Sounds like it. Quite, I think even now, my understanding is it's still quite as elaborate, if not more, in terms of planning those events. Well, um, I, th- I think one difference now is that um, the tableau are only of the court members. They're not elaborate scenes that illustrate necessarily the theme. They present the women of the court now in usually just one tableau. And also, generally, the crews don't have their costumes, and each person who is invited to come dance for the evening gets a keepsake, or they did for the time period I'm talking about. And most of those things, like brooches and jewelry and um, ornate kinds of um, you know, 
presents were made in Europe and the invitations were made in France by hand. So most of, of these items are now made in America. I think that's another difference too. Mm, okay. Interesting. So the material culture of that, I guess, has shifted yeah. in that way. Okay. Um, going back to the different roles here, can you talk about the different positions women had in the balls? I'm thinking about the title of queen, for example. Um, sure. Um, as far as the women in the balls were concerned, there were lots of different roles for women. Queen was certainly the most visible, although I will say that the women who came to the balls as guests were also, I think, for me, what I found to be most fun because they could sit in the balconies and watching the the other women dance or watching the queens the guests in the balconies conferred status or revoked it based on their approval um, that they made very well known. So I I found that to be really fun because you think these are very well-to-do people. They're going to go and sit nice and quiet, but they didn't. They, They made their approval or dismissal of someone known. And I found that to be really interesting, but the, the queen was perhaps like, like you're bringing up the the most well-known or most visible of the female roles within the crew scene. And that's because at the ball, the ball would open with a tableau. And in the early days, there would be three or four tableau. And then the curtain would come down. And after the tableau, there would be the presentation of a mock court. And the mock court, as time went on, had probably four maids and four dukes and a king and a queen. And the king was always somebody who was a crewman. And we never knew who he was again, because he was completely costumed. And he was elected by secret ballot from the members of the crew. And it was the, a really high honor. And you had a different king each year, right? So this was this great honor bestowed upon a man of the crew each year. But the queen was a debutante. And so the honor for the debutante was not actually her, but it's conferring status on her father. So if you're a crewman and you're doing really well in your crew and in your life and your crew wants to honor you and your daughter is a debutante that year, then they might select her to be queen. Now, there's a lot of, (laughs) I think, stories, maybe myths that being a queen was conferred upon girls as soon as they were born, that the leaders of the crews would look over the cradles and see these babies and say, you're going to be queen of Comus one day. I don't know if that's really true or not. But once women had become debutantes in their debutante year, if they were queen um, during this part of the ball, the king would walk over and take her hand. And mind you, she's wearing like many, many pounds, many, many pounds of jewels and a formal dress. And she's got a tiara and she's got a, you know, a long train on. And she's, I mean, she is laden down physically with the success of her class. And they do a grand promenade around And so like this regal presence 
is an idea of supporting crew values. And the queen is expected to marry into the crew and to continue the bonds of solidarity. And often if queens didn't marry into the crew, uh, they married northern businessmen or politicians. Some, for instance, married uh, into Boss Tweed's family. Or in rare cases, some of them married actual European royalty. So they mar- they moved in very elite circles. Um, but most importantly, the queens were the, the public face of the crew, too. So um, as much as their, their father's status depended on them succeeding, uh, the day after the ball, their faces were published, the queen's faces were published in local newspapers. And so people in New Orleans had a sense for who was involved in the balls. And this actually many years and decades later is how historians like myself are able to trace who were actually crew members. And that's through the daughters. So this is a way for, for proud papas to kind of toot their own horns and for women to stand out as not only the best of crew society, but also the best of New Orleans society. Um, but they, they also had a uh, decision, you know, how they carried out those roles had a lot of consequences. And so they had some power, too. That's awesome. Um, while we're talking about, you know, women participants in these spaces, can you tell us about the figure on the cover of your book? Oh, that's a really beautiful photograph, isn't it? Yeah. And that that photograph, I think, perfectly illustrates that kind of laden with the success of of their class. That's Elise Aldiger, and she was the 1907 Queen of Proteus. And her family was involved in the Junior Confederate Memorial Association, and she was on six crew courts. So she was really popular. And yeah, that that is really a beautiful photo. And I got that from the Historic New Orleans Collection. And the Historic New Orleans Collection is located in the French Quarter. And I did a lot of my research there over the years. It's such a beautiful place to work and they have so much. I saw dance cards and um, I saw business journals and I mean, scrapbooks from debutantes and there's so much there. It's, it's an amazing place. Yes. I have also been there and am grateful for <laughs> that resource. Yeah. Um, kudos to them. Um Moving on to chapter three, going back to the tableau, you know, you talk about how political themes played out in those performances during the reconstruction period. Can you explain to our listeners um, what a tableau is? And in these, you know, performances, how did ideals of masculinity and femininity of the time play out? Yes. Okay. So a tableau was known as a living picture during that day. And it's, um, during the ball, there would be like a hush in the, in the, um, among the audience. And there was an orchestra and they would start to play a piece of music and the lights would come up. And when the lights came up there on stage were actors and they would be enacting a series of poses that physically illustrated a painting 
or a myth or a scene from a story of some kind that, of course, related to that season's annual theme. And they could be really elaborate and include various position changes or even choreography. And some of the crew tableau utilize dozens of men, uh, platforms that could be 20 feet tall, and they had costumes, they had scenery, they had backdrops, they had um, all kinds of different high production quality elements involved. And the actors were expected to hold these poses anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute. And sometimes there were multiple encores if the audience loved it so much. And there were probably four or five tableaus in the heyday, like the serious heyday of um, the old line tableau, which was in reconstruction. And so during this time, the tableau were so intricate that the crews created and printed these elaborate booklets to describe what was going on on stage for their guests. And you could see then how this body and performance gives us a lot of clues about what was going on, not only during Reconstruction, but as far as how Reconstruction was a time that the crews were thinking through their, their themselves, you know, as men and as women. And remember, there weren't any women on stage. These are just men. These are fraternal groups. So even if there are female characters, they're men dressed as women, which could often be very comical, you know? So if we saw female characters, um, there were two basic kinds of female characters that we saw. And one was going to be like this virtuous American ideal and that was this wonderful way of letting their wives know what they should aspire to. And then there was also this kind of hag-like backwards feminist that they would show, like the woman who wanted to vote. You know what I mean? And that was sort of like a warning to their wives and daughters, don't become like this. But when it came to the men and the male characters, they were always portraying like knights and heroes, adventurers, uh, kings, gods, even on stage. And so clearly they were trying to make sense of who they were as men after the Civil War, or so I argue, you know, so they might have lost on the battlefield, but through their tableau, they could still essentially rule in this fantasy realm. Mm, interesting. Very interesting there. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, there's even one part where I talk about they loved being marble statues on stage. Yes. And so what does it mean to marbleize manhood on stage during this very specific time? Because so many of their tableau themes during Reconstruction were political satire, where they were attacking the radical republicanism, where they were attacking Darwinism, where they were attacking, you know, women who wanted to vote, you know, so anything that was progressive, they in their parades for the public were just like, ha ha ha, isn't this funny? But in their tableaus and private, they were just tearing it apart. So there was something incredibly potent about the body in private among themselves that was able to perform what they were really valuing and where they were really anxious. 
Right. They felt like it was maybe a safe space that they could get away with something like that or. And where they were trying to work out what their values were or how they were responding to what was going on around them. Because, the, you know, the world, the nation, the city, it was all changing so rapidly. Right. For sure. And that's, you know, one of those spaces where they could do that. Um you said through bodily performance and all kinds of pageantry it sounds like um going back to more of the bodily performances in this ball space you know in the next chapter in chapter four um you state that the grand march functioned as the core performative element of crew royalty and acted as the central arena for female participation can you explain this yeah, I think that goes to what I was saying earlier about women as queens are really having a chance to make choices, right? So they can follow the script or they can push back against it, right? So the Grand March is, again, after the tableau, the king comes over, he gets the queen, and then he leads her around in this very grand gesture. They go all around the space in a circle, and then they make geometric patterns. It can be quite elaborate. And then the dukes and the maids follow behind them, and sometimes then the entire rest of the crew. So they are leading the way, right? And while they do this, they stop at various points to bow for him, curtsy for her, which I, in my book detail, there are like seven different parts that are required in a single curtsy. And then I go into what does it mean socially to curtsy, right? So they're bowing, they're curtsying, they're waving their scepters. And all the time, the queen's expected to be stately. She's expected to be regal and graceful and to make zero, um, you know, mistakes. She's expected to carry the whole show off without a hitch, right? To be the most impressive and, um, yeah, graceful part of what everyone is seeing. And so then after greeting their subjects, though, the king and queen retire to a throne on the stage where they spend the rest of the evening surveying their fictitious land and supposedly just looking lovely while everyone else dances. So after that, after that going around the room in this very formalized, very stately regal promenade, then her body becomes almost like a stone statue, like those tableau men we were talking about a second ago. So what does that mean for, for a woman who is as we were talking about a few minutes ago, involved in this very serious business of, you know, now that she is ending her adolescence as a debutante and becoming a woman, she's going to be expected to get married. She's on the marriage market right now. That throne has so many implications. So how she's choosing to participate in being a queen has a lot of implications too. Is she going to uphold physically and figuratively the group values? Is she going to keep the script? Or is she going to, as some women did, go out and advocate for women's rights? Or one woman I read about in letters had secretly become engaged 
before she became a queen as a way to have some control over her own life. So there were these ways of navigating what it meant for these women to participate in this role. And all of them had ramifications about the values and the continuity of the group. Right. And how do you see, you know, these, I guess, different types of power dynamics and, you know, bodily expression happening in dances like the quadro and the waltz in terms of how they exhibit what you're talking about, status and hierarchy? Well, those are two excellent examples that that exhibit, I would say, group values in two different ways. So after the king and queen retire to their throne, the maids and dukes of the court come out and dance a quadrille. And the quadrille exhibits status and hierarchy because it's got these geometric patterns that are um, constantly changing and give the dancers a place to have this mobility where they can intermingle and they can engage in this polite conversation. But the thing is, is that it's a group dance. So it's always emphasizing community. And those geometric patterns are emphasizing stability. And at the same time, the quadrille was a popular European and American high society dance that in the 19th century society balls, only the most like um, distinguished guests could open the ball or society balls were opened by the most distinguished guests. And that was through a quadrille. And they were the only ones allowed to dance that first quadrille. And this is essentially how the dancing part of the carnival ball functioned as well, that the maids and the dukes opened that dancing part of the ball with a quadrille. And so as they did that, they had all of those rules and regulations of respectability and class distinction that we were talking about at the beginning of the interview. They were still bound by that even though they were in like Mardi Gras costumes. And they had people in an entire opera house watching them. So they were essentially a hierarchy within a hierarchy that's referencing a status within a status. After they finished dancing their, their quadrille, Then the dance floor usually opened up and the most popular dance when the dance floor opened up for general dancing where anybody could come and dance, the most popular dance was the waltz. And that was this wonderful couples dance where two people could be in a tight embrace and turn around themselves and move around the room in bigger circles. And it was this great heart pumping dance um, that provided space for women to enjoy the dance just as much as men did. And it was thrilling, you know, to be able to move with momentum in a space where you're usually bound by all of these rules we've been talking about. But what both of these dances do is that in the carnival ball, they both work really well as courtship courtship dances. One is more formal than the other, of course, but they're both courtship dances and they both ensure the survival of the group. Community is at the heart of both dances. Stability is at the heart of both dances. And that's why they were both popular in the carnival ball. Right. 
that makes a lot of sense. Again, it's that privatized space we were talking about before to negotiate um, and parse out those values, you know, in that way. Um, and in this community too, how did you see, for instance, the ragtime dances affect that space as they, you know, they were brought into the balls, you know, in the early 20th century? Oh, that's great. So <laughs> how did they affect, how did ragtime affect that space through chaos? Because they think what you're pointing out is that the quadrille and the waltz affected the space through like this contributing to everyone having this participatory moment, right? And it was about the collective. But in ragtime, it's a highly individualistic pursuit, right? So ragtime meant utter chaos, at least for the older generation, it was syncopated. It was fast. It brought partners. If we thought the waltz was close, ragtime brought people even closer physically. But it also defied these Eurocentric standards aesthetically that had come to define the dance floor so far. Right. So ragtime dancing was steeped in African American ways of moving. And because of that, the genteel population didn't see it as very respectable, but it was a national craze. And even in the ballroom of old line crews, rags made their way in, but they made their way in via a very whitewashed and stylized version, the kind of versions that Vernon and Irene Castle offered, right? What this did though, was it allowed the older generation to maintain their decorum while the younger generation could still experiment with new styles, with new tempos, with new flavors. And this was monumental. It really was the first time that crews were able to adapt in such a way. They finally became flexible. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is why dance is so cool, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Oh my goodness. You know, you bring up that point in your conclusion, too, about how the prominence of the body and the body in motion is vital to understanding these old line crews, you know, and you balance these perspectives that you just brought out with like the rag dances and everything else, but also the broader historical context. So can you talk about, you know, you started to get it a little bit at the beginning, but can you talk about your process of like bringing those things together? Yes. Okay. Well, I'd love to say that the process is natural for me, but I really am hesitant to say that really anything's natural. So when I'm thinking about it more, it is a skill that I've developed over time, you know, like um, because I'm from New Orleans and I've read a lot about New Orleans history and because I'm steeped in dance history and have studied American history you know, those three parts of my interest, they keep driving me forward. And I remember, actually, I remember when it all clicked into place, like the micro and the macro views is when I sat down one day and I wrote out, and we were talking about this in the beginning, when I wrote out what the organization of the ball was, right? From the guests entering all the way through till dawn the next day when most of the, the guests like stumble out you know, to go home. Although they don't always go home. Some of them go to Storyville. And so when I mapped out what is that organization of the ball itself, 
And then I looked at my timeline and I kind of overlaid those together of reconstruction. And I was like, wow, you know, there are some categories here, some eras and the eras aren't like super neat categorically. There's some overlap, but they're there. There's reconstruction and the Gilded Age and the progressive era. I saw, it just clicked one day. And I remember this. I don't remember when it was, but I remember it clicked that the parts of the ball and when they changed actually overlapped with the eras. And I saw that the tableaus were more important to the crews themselves during reconstruction. And then the court promenades became more important during the Gilded Age. And then the dancing became more important during the progressive era. And I mean, we just talked about how ragtime came in and they finally learned to adapt and become flexible. And when you think about that during a time called the progressive era, I kept looking at those those two timelines next to each other and let them speak to each other. And at every turn was asking, well, what's the relationship between what's going on inside of this super secret world and then what's going on outside of it? Because, you know, they don't exist in a vacuum that the crewmen are, are part of their own experience, you know, and that experience comes from how they're navigating what's happening in New Orleans and what's happening in America at large, you know? So that's how this process really became interrelated for me. I mean, it was so amazing when that happened. Right. And as you mentioned at the beginning, I mean, your training and your background, you know, all came together, you know, and that way it sounds like, um, Look, also still looking at kind of the big picture of your book here, as we've been talking about, you seem to value bringing out the roles of women in these balls, particularly over the course of the book. Um, but are there other perspectives that you think also need to be explored within the old line carnival balls? Oh, I love that question. Yes, precisely because the old line crews didn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, and because they weren't the only Mardi Gras rituals that were, you know, underway in New Orleans at the time, uh, they were in conversation, like I'm saying, with the world around them. And right. I, I do really think that even though, like, my book is looking at dance and is looking at um, gender and class, it really is that whiteness that keeps also coming out as a through line. And so I think there's a lot more to be done with race and dance and Mardi Gras in, in, in this study, but also in general. So like, for instance, um, what were they responding to or in conversation with um, as far as race and dance and Mardi Gras are concerned? Uh, what about Mardi Gras Indians during this time? What about the baby dolls during this time? You know, the crewmen's links to paramilitary activity have been so well documented. You know, it's it's historically, um, and this is what I'm saying, the other histories, the other Mardi Gras histories very clearly talk about how some crewmen were involved in lynchings and, and uh murder and all of these 
ousting of radical republicanism and, 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 so to speak, you know, um, so how does that, how does that translate into a dance lens or not even translate? Cause I, I think that then kind of implies that dance is outside of all of, all of these uh, right. questions and it's not, but so not, but, but, and how, how does race and, and Mardi Gras outside of the, the super secret tableau ballroom function during this time? I think that's the question I'm really driving at, you know? And then again, too, the French balls at, in the end of my book, I talk about how the crewmen would drop their wives off after their, their own balls. And then they'd go to Storyville to these, French balls, which were um, prostitute balls. And then they would essentially, you know, engage in these parties that were like topsy-turvy comments on their own, you know, class privilege. And so I think that there's a lot more to be done there. And I often think about this as a next book idea. There's a lot to be done there about the idea of Storyville and dance at the turn of the century as a a way to examine race and class and gender and power, you know? Right. I, I agree. I think that would be a really valuable, um, complimentary perspective, you know, to what you've already been doing, you know? Um, and I guess to looking at, the research you've already done here in this book, you know, what do you think makes this body of, you know, information you presented here different from the existing New Orleans Carnival scholarship? Uh, let's see. Well, I mean, there are a few, there are a few different things that I do here that others haven't, of course, talking about dance, which has been a recurring theme. I keep saying, you know, I read about the dance, but nobody really explains what the dances were. I actually explain what the dances were at the balls. I looked at every single dance card from every ball, from every old line crew from those years. And I saw the dances that they did. And I looked at the patterns and I talk about all of those dances. So that's one thing, but it's one thing just to describe the dances. And it's another thing to figure out why is that important? So I also do that. And that comes to the, the idea of the change over time that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, that other historians look at the crewmen in relation to events that happen in New Orleans and kind of that relationship is more that the crewmen respond to events or, or rather react to events. And not all histories do this, but most of them do. And I put them more in conversation with each other. And in doing so, we see a change over time so that the crewmen aren't as static as those tableau characters on stage. They're actually breathing entities that shift over time. They're not these glimpses of men who were embroiled in the battle at Liberty Place, and then all of a sudden they 
gave up their power or went deeper underground or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And nothing happened in between. But there is an actual change over time that we can chart. And then also by looking at the structure of the balls themselves, like the themes and the tableau and the dances, um, there's some the constancy that we can see that's important, like lineage. And I hadn't seen anybody talk about this before, that looking at who the families were, the women who were on the courts, when I put that together, I saw that there were more families that were on courts um, than weren't. I mean, obviously, but they were like super families, you know, like, and I call them family dynasties. And this was significant to understanding where there was more cultural capital and cultural power within the crews. So like the super hierarchy or hierarchy within a hierarchy. But I also, with the help of a very deft assistant who was phenomenal, she was great. Uh, we dove really deep into the backgrounds of the the crewmen themselves. And we were able to trace their backgrounds as far back as we could go. So many generations and we were able to actually develop a like demographic portrait and saw patterns that were very relevant socially and culturally. And I hadn't seen that before, that there is actually um, a background character, you know, that, that comprised an old line crewman, you know? And so by charting all of this, um, we were I was able to see more specifically to understand their values and why exactly this exclusivity was in important. And so their their dancing choices and their themes came into sharper focus. And so I, I you know that's a really long answer, but it took me a long time to also value all of all of the um I think elements that I contributed and now I'm I'm rather proud of them. I think they're pretty cool. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now, you know, you've had some time to kind of like, you know, think about these things and, you know, been talking to people about your book, like here and whatnot. Who do you think, you know, target audiences for this book might be? Oh, well, as I said earlier, if you've met people from New Orleans, you probably know they're from New Orleans because they talk about <laughs> New Orleans, New Orleans, you know? Right. So, <laughs> I, you know, to me, people from New Orleans would enjoy, New Orleanians would enjoy reading this because we do enjoy learning more about our city and where we come from, but also because of that micro, macro interrelationship um, but I don't just talk about dance exclusively as something that's so technical and and hierarchical. I break down the hierarchy, ironically, while also talking about hierarchy. And I talk about other art forms and music and um, fashion. And I try to bring in as much as, as relevant about the times. So I think anyone who's interested in American history who's interested in the American South, who's interested in American culture, you know, it would appeal to both the generalist, a general reader, and also a scholar. Right. I definitely agree with that. It's a very accessible read, but it's, yeah, I think it's very much lends itself to both audiences, which is pretty awesome. 
Um, and then two, why don't you share with our listeners what other projects you have underway? <laughs> oh, I'm so horrible. I get so excited and begin working on lots of different projects, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly interested in, in the world around us and how, how the world around us is a way to understand or how the past is a way to understand who we are now and how who we are now is a way to understand the past. You know, like this conversation too, you know, the historical one is also interesting to me. So um, just as I looked at New Orleans as, as a starting place for this book, I have now looked to, for instance, my teenage years for the start of a couple of projects. And I didn't realize that until I was thinking about it the other day. So I'm working on two smaller projects that are going to turn into a series of articles. And one focuses on the anthem, for better or for worse, that defined in many ways my generation. And that's Nirvana smells like teen spirit. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at the music video for that and specifically how moshing and teen, teen angst and enlightenment. And also there's cheerleading in there too, how all of those elements work together to really illuminate 1990s um, like teen identity, right? Um, And then I'm also looking at something else that grew out of having an impact on me in my teen years in the 90s, which was my favorite novel at the time, which was The Handmaid's Tale, which has now had such a resurgence, right? Yes. Yes. So I'm looking at it, uh, the, the Hulu's rendition of it. And if you look, there's so much to be said about the body and rituals and social choreography. So I'm looking at Hulu's incarnation and social choreography within that show, and especially how it relates to like nationalism and ballet and how that has spilled over into real life global protests. So that's another project. And then finally, I'm also, as if that's not enough, I am um, editing a book about dance in American popular culture and what its goals are, are to discuss a lot of the issues that we talked about here today, actually, like gender and race and Americanness and class, but also um, to look at issues, issues surrounding citizenship and immigration, human rights, um, and other issues that it's, it's, predominantly for a student audience, uh, college students and high school students. So the kinds of issues that they're going to grapple with in everyday life as they're learning to become global citizens. Cool. I'll have to keep an eye out for that one. Sounds interesting. And I'm excited to see too about the Nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) I know they're so fun. It's, It's not a bad job, I tell you. Yeah, sounds like a pretty sweet deal for you. (laughs) But thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Atkins. This was a pleasure to talk with you today. Oh, it was so lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem at all. And listeners, we appreciate you for being with us for this episode of New Books and Celebration Studies here on the New Books Network. 
As a recap, this is Emily Allen wrapping up an episode with Dr. Jennifer Atkins about her 2017 book, New Orleans Carnival Balls, The Secret Side of Mardi Gras, 1870-1920, from Louisiana State University Press. Bye for now, folks.